Two of the most popular television shows now are uh, The Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere. These shows, uh, these television uh, programs are patterned uh, after each other. In fact, Hill Street Blues became so popular that St. Elsewhere was uh, aired or um, uh, shown, and it was designed just like uh, Hill Street Blues by the same people. Hill Street Blues, if you're not a television watcher, uh, takes place in a precinct hall. It's a, it's a, it's a plot about uh, the uh, uh, police and uh, crime, etc. And St. Elsewhere takes place in a hospital. And uh, there is a kind of a, there is a plot in both of those shows, a main story, a main plot, and uh, then there are these counterplots that are on, uh, that just kind of emerge throughout the program. You've seen it, right? Now, either you're thinking about that baby or you're laughing at me. I'm not sure which. Uh, uh, let me go back and say that, that these two favorite shows, uh, Hill Street Blues and uh, St. Elsewhere, have this main plot. It's a main story that just kind of uh, develops through that one hour. And then there are these counterplots that take place all during the time. I mean, you're watching this plot, and all of a sudden there's another plot, counterplot, begins to develop. And I guess that's what makes it so interesting. Interesting. I'm told, I don't know much about music, I'm told that, but I'm also told that, that that's the way a symphony works, that there is this melody, this main melody that, that flows through that marvelous piece and you have your oboe, and you have your cello, and they're just working away up here. And if the uh, maestro just cuts everybody off and just lets the, the oboe and the cello, you know, play, you'd think they're in the wrong piece. Doesn't even sound like that symphony, the melody. It's the counter melody that just blends in and makes that marvelous thing work. It's also true about the books of the Bible. There is this marvelous theme, this plot, that starts in the book of Genesis with the fall, and it just unfolds all the way through to the very end. And then there are these counterplots that develop all the way through, especially is this true in the book of Acts. Now the plot of the book of Acts is chapter 1, verse 8. We've said that many times. You shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the main message. The heart of the book of Acts is in that one verse. That's the plot. It's evangelism up front. It's high-profile evangelism. And so if you want to read the book of Acts, you'll see the plot emerge. Chapters 1 through 7, they're in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13, they're in Samaria. And chapters 14 to the end of the book, the remotest part of the earth. But in the text I want to read tonight, the counterplot begins to emerge. The, um, the uh, counter-melody begins to play. The maestro cuts off the orchestra, and the, oboe, the oboist, is that it? And the celloist begin to play the counter-melody. And the counter-melody to the book of Acts is not evangelism up front, it's discipleship back behind. There are more than just mass meetings in the church. There are more than just huge churches and explosions and the power of the Spirit of God and cloven tongues of fire. There's a, there's a counter-melody that starts to play in the book of Acts. 
And so that Luke takes the spotlight off of this main plot and he focuses on the people behind the scenes so that behind the scenes there is this satellite work beginning to develop and there is discipleship. Discipleship. Many of us don't even know what that means. We've heard the term. We don't know what it means. And so I want to give you an illustration of it. I want you to hold the place in Acts 18. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, is the classic verse on discipleship. Now, let me give you a definition of discipleship. You might just put it down. You got your little yellow sheet? Right out beside discipleship explained. You write this. Discipleship is an informal, behind-the-scene character training where one works with another person or with small groups. It's kind of the hand-carving work. Now, prior to this counterplot or counter-melody, we've seen the... uh, We've seen mass production. <laughs> and there's this gigantic assembly line. And they're, they're stamping out these churches and these disciples. And there's not much hand carving. You know, hand carving takes is, is a long and tedious and painful work. We have a friend over in uh, Fort Worth named Callie Wiss. And we were over to visit her not long ago. And she showed us, she's very wealthy, and she showed us these marvelous chairs she bought from an antique dealer. Magnificent pieces of furniture. And, and uh, they were these huge high back chairs, and they were hand-carved. Beautiful. Said they were over a hundred years old. And as we talked about it, it was just kind of the consensus. You'll never find any more of those kinds of chairs because the, the, the cost of, of labor to carve them would be prohibitive. There is, a, there is a behind the scene hand carving of character that you don't see. It's called discipleship. And so Paul is saying in chapter 2 uh, of, of 2 Timothy, verse 2, don't become a prima donna. Don't become a superstar. You do as I have done with you. Now look at this. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now what Paul is saying to Timothy is, I am the originator and you are the recipient And those who will benefit from what I have taught you are these faithful men. I want you to place a deposit in others as I have done with you. For God has not intended for you to be the Dead Sea, but to be a channel and a tree. And so what I want to try to lay out tonight, what I want to try to convince us to do, is that I want to see if I can challenge us that each one of us who are not disciples would become a disciple. And that we would join what is the most exciting thing in all the world to find someone we can pour our lives into and, and train and disciple. And it's best illustrated by Jesus. Now, I'm getting to the text, but I'm coming at it from, from uh, Medill. Okay? So, uh, I want to show you how it's best illustrated. And it's found in the book of Mark, chapter 3. Mark 3. That's, in, that's one of the Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Verse 13 of chapter 3. And he, Jesus, went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be, look at this, association. There's an appointment, there's an association. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. There was the appointment, there was the association, and there was the authority. And Jesus began to develop disciples. Now to chapter 18 of the, of the book of Acts. Beginning at verse 18, really going to start at verse 1, but we're going to finally wind up at verse 18. Now, when I came to Durant, how many of you deacons were present in this uh, fellowship hall meeting the first time I, I set foot on foreign soil here? Uh, how many of you were in that meeting? Many of you. Thank you. Some have fallen by the wayside, but many are, many are still here. It, is my, it was my conviction then, and, 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 deep, and deeply is that conviction... Uh, a part of me now that they are that 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 there is a two-pronged um, ministry of the church. That is, you have those people who are out there. Uh, what we used to, what I referred to, I think at night, is fishing in the pagan pond. You know, as is out to evangelize and win people to Jesus Christ. And then you have this. A force of people, this army of people, this number of people over here who are ready to nurture those people that are brought in uh, uh, from the pagan pond. And I said, at that time, you give me 95% of the people who will nurture those who are, who are being brought into the fellowship. And with the other 5% committed, we'll have more people coming in than you can nurture. The thing is true tonight. I baptized in this baptistry 102 people this year, since September 1st last year. And there are about 50 of those people who made professions of faith in Christ who are still in this town who have not been brought into the fellowship. And in this last church year, we had 125 people unite with our church from other churches. Over 200 people came into the fellowship of this church right from out of a context, many of them, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of an unbelieving world. Now what we desperately need tonight, what we desperately need is a solid commitment on the part of this church to find those people that have come to know the Lord and to disciple them. These two guys sitting around here, Ron and Todd, uh, I've already, uh, we've already talked about the fact that they're going to begin to disciple with me every, every Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock for one hour. Just I'm going to pour my life into those two young men. But I can't do it all. And there must be that counter-melody, that counter-plot, where we gather those people into the kingdom of God and we nurture them. And that's the plan. That's the plan of this book. Now, if you're wondering where we are, we've already done scripturally stated and historically illustrated. If you missed it, it's too late. We're discipleship modeled, and there's Paul in Corinth. You see that on your yellow sheet. Now, there are three things that Paul did in Corinth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. All right? Now notice three things that he did in Corinth. One, he associated closely with a couple. He, in, he initiated a friendship. Verse 2 said that, that, he, that he found, it implies, that he, that he came to Corinth and he was looking for somebody to disciple. And he initiated this friendship. And verse 3 says that they worked together and they lived together. And so while they were just living together and associating with each other in work and in their life, he began to pour his life and what he knew into them. He initiated this friendship so that he could begin to live his life with them. Perhaps after church, he came up to uh, Priscilla he said, uh, and to Aquila. He said, do you folks mind if I come home and live with y'all? Now that, that would, uh, I don't know what it'd do to Margaret, but it would, uh, it would shake me up, I'm going to tell you, uh, probably, and, and you too. Um, but it's the, it's the genius of discipleship. I want to live with you, said I want to come, they did the same, I want to work with you, and I want to live with you, and in the interplay of our lives together, I'm going to teach you what it means to be a Christian. When I was in uh, Fort Worth, uh, I decided I wanted to disciple some people, and I initiated some discipleship groups, and one of my guys was a school teacher, and he took his uh, brown bag to school with him, and... Uh, and so one day, it was my time to, to uh, once a week I tried to eat with, with one of the guys, it was my time to eat lunch with him. And so I just took a brown bag with me and I went out to eat with him. Really wasn't uh, that big of a deal to spend that much time with that fella. Somehow there's got to be more than that. This, this interchanging, this interplay. Now I know that you and I have more than we can shake a stick at. You know, we've got more responsibility than we can, uh, that we can really keep up with unless we want to get serious in priorities about putting our life into somebody as a Christian. He, he associated with, secondly, he trained them in spiritual matters. He says that he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade the Jews. He began to, to, to put some input into them. He didn't just live his life out with them, he began to teach them. And verse 18 says that the third thing, he multiplied himself through them. Now look at verse 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him, look at that, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Cancrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow, the Nazarite, the Nazarite vow. So he took him with him. Now, it's interesting to me that here, for, for the first time, he met these people and he, he, he started to live with them so he could put his life in there with them. And then when he started to leave, he took, they just picked up their tents, uh, play on words, they just picked up their tents and they went with him. Obviously, in the, in the, in the training that he gave them and in the teaching that he gave them, they were convinced that that was a part of their life now to do just like Paul had done to them. So they set out to do it. Now look at verses 20 and 21. All right, verse 19 first. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay lo a longer time, he did not... 
and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus, and as a matter of fact, he went back to Antioch. But he left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and there's where we are in the text. Now, 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 now look at verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time, he departed and passed excessively, etc., etc. Verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Now there's something that we need to say about Apollos. First, he was an Alexandrian. Came from that great city of culture and intellect. He was an Alexandrian. He was eloquent. He could preach. He didn't stutter, you know. He, didn't, he, he, was, he could say the words. And as they listened to him preach, that is Priscilla and Aquila, they, they were saying to themselves, this, there's a lot of things this man is not saying. He wasn't talking about the crucifixion. He wasn't talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And he didn't say anything about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For all that he knew was the, about the, the, the message of repentance by John and John's baptism. It wasn't that his message was inaccurate. It was that it was incomplete. And they were thinking to themselves, this fellow has tremendous potential, but he needs some help. So look at verse 26. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. Look at that. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, two things about Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. One... They took this Alexandrian, this Apollos, aside, and they what? They discipled him. They explained to him more about the Scriptures. They invested in his life. There, there, and there was this warmth and tactfulness. You know, they didn't come up to him and you know, hold up their hand during his sermon and say, Hey, preacher, you know, let me say, you, you, they, there was this warmth and tact and in a, in, a, in a loving and gentle way, they took him aside and they, and they discipled him. Now, where did they get that? They got it from the Apostle Paul. And the second thing they did is found in verse 27, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, they encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. That is the second thing. They encouraged and supported and released him. Discipling doesn't turn your life into a Jonesville. After they taught him and discipled him, they sent him out to do the same thing. Now it's interesting. Have you, you remember that verse in 1 Corinthians and, and where that great debate was taking place in the church? Uh, and that, that, that uh, rift was beginning to develop because one was liking Paul, etc. And the Apostle Paul said, I, Paul, wa uh, planted. Apollos watered. And God gave the increase. That's the genius of discipleship. Now one of these days, um, uh, this guy right here, these two guys 
are going to be watering because I'm going to be planting in their life. And here's old Jeff who came this morning to join our church. Remember him, don't you? And his young friend, his young, his young pastor is named Ted Latham. He grew up in a church I pastored. One of the tr tremendous potential, great, great uh, mind. And I, I decided I'd just try to take that young fellow under, under my wing and encourage him and help him. In fact, I brought him on my staff and paid him. I took him to the Northwest with me and spent a summer with him just telling him all I knew. It took me 15 minutes and uh, poured my life into him. And now look at Jeff comes, places of life in our church. That's the whole part of it. Now, Jeff, we're going to help place his life in somebody else's. Isn't that exciting? Now, there's Apollos and Achaia. We're going to finish up here. Hang in there. Apollos and Achaia is the last part of verse 27. He says... And when he had arrived, look at that. And when he, Apollos, had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. What did he do? He discipled them. He found out those who had become Christians, and he discipled them. He discipled them. And then the second thing he did, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now look at that. Where did he learn that Jesus was the Christ? He learned it from Priscilla and Aquila. He was preaching before. But his preaching was the repentance, the, the gospel of repentance by John the Baptist and the, and the baptism of John. And he was eloquent in his message, but it wasn't enough until Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and they discipled him. And now he powerfully refuted the Jews with the message that Jesus was the Christ because he learned it from these two people who invested in him. That's exciting. Now I see two applications. I'm through. The first application is this. The best relay of truth is discipleship. The best relay of truth is discipleship. Man, I love track. Um, I used to run track. That was when I was skinny. Well, I love it. I like to watch it on television. It's not really a major sport anymore, and so, but, uh, but it's one of my favorite sports. And the two favorite races that I like are the relays. The 440, it used to be called 440, it's 400 by 4, uh, it's 100 by 4, uh, 100 times 4 meters. 100 meters times 4, or whatever. It's, uh, uh, each one runs 100 meters, and there are four of them, and they pass this baton. Took a long time to get there. And the other is that uh, mile relay, where there are four running each run, running a quarter. Oh, man, I love it. And see those guys uh, laying that baton in there to that next guy and seeing them go. What a, what a, what a picture. Um, Discipleship is the only method that is endorsed in the Scripture about how to pass the Word of God on. It's the only one endorsed in the Scripture. It's the best. Second, the best time to start discipling or being discipled is right now. Don't wait for somebody to come here with this big manual, you know, there are, there are these guys that go all up and down the country, and they're wonderful, and I've had them in my church. They bring these big manuals in. It's huge, about that thick. And they got all these pages that, that are designed for discipleship. Don't wait for somebody to come with a big manual. 
put it in your hands. Take somebody and put your life into him. Put your word into him. Warren Webster, a missionary to Pakistan, said, If I had my life to live over, I'd live it to change people. I'd live it to change people. Now, there are two things that the Bible says will not pass away. You know what they are? One of them is the Word of God. The Scripture says that the Word of God will abide forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God will abide forever. The second thing that will live forever, second, human beings. The Scripture says that we have immortality. That means that we live, we will not die. We either live or die forever. But there's no end to the Word of God and human beings. Now, there is an end to this suit. In fact, it's, it's getting slick now. It's, it's about over. And there's an end to my old uh, 76 olds. I'm trying to get enough money together to trade her off. I mean, my, my daughter, when we get in it and turn on the air conditioner, uh, you, you, you'll have to ride with me to have that experience. And she's our, she, she was telling me today, you know, we, uh, uh, she, we get in the car and we turn on the air conditioner and she starts talking about it and, and, and it's all clear on uh, runway three. It's just this roar that takes place in there. The fan's about to come through the, the dashboard. That thing's about worn out. It's got 99,000 miles on it. I'm going to keep her till she turns 100. Never done that before. It's about to wear out. Everything you have is about gone. The only thing that will last is this Word and these people. You know what that means? It means that if you have to give up everything else to put this Word into the life of somebody so He can pass it on, it's worth it. Um, you're either... Listen, listen to me. You need to be tonight either a disciple or you need to be a discipler. You want to make up your mind to do that? Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, there's no way for us to explain our own Christian faith without someone's name. Somebody named James Smith who decided he would take a young high school boy and teach him. And even though, Father, so many times I didn't even believe I was listening, I was listening. He was putting his life into me. And I thank you for that memory, for that help. And for men across the years and the days that have put their arm around me and said, hey, I... I've got something I want to help you with, teach you, tell you, remind you. Father, it's just so exciting to preach to college students. Our heart just fills with joy because great potential, a whole life left. And I pray that you'll call out tonight, disciples, people will say, you know, I'm willing, I don't know much, but I'm willing to walk beside some younger people, some college, some high school students or middle school. I'm willing to 
to take them once a week and put my life into theirs, teach them, and help them. Or some adults who are willing to say, I, I know there have been many who became Christians in the revival time, and I'd like to be able just to pick out one, initiate a friendship, and in a non-structured way begin to put my life into theirs. And I pray that there might be some tonight who would say, you know, I'm hungry to know the Word of God. I come to church, I come to Sunday, Sunday school occasionally, but it's not enough. I just don't get it. Is there somebody who can teach me how to live for God? I pray that some would say that. And I pray that this special and precious moment will be a life-changing and church-changing and world-changing moment. Christ's name. Now we have three invitations. The first invitation is for you to come and say, I want to begin to follow Jesus. I want to begin to follow Christ. You see, the Christian life starts with some point of time where you decide that you're going to give your life, set your face to walk with Christ, to, to give your heart and life to Him, to have Him forgive your sin, cleanse you of sin, and you want to give your heart to Jesus. That's the first invitation. These are simultaneous. Second invitation is for those of us who would like to come to say, Pastor, I need to know about God. I'm willing to take the, the discipline, the time. I'll discipline my life so that I can just learn how to love and how to walk and how to serve Christ. Maybe you'd like to join Todd and Ron with me Tuesdays at 11 o'clock you'd make that commitment or maybe there would be third, the third invitation maybe there would be some of you would come to say you know this is the church I'm drawn to this is the church I believe speaks what I think should be spoken lives how I think should be lived and I believe that there's something exciting here and I want to be a part of the family that belongs here and I want to join the church oh We'd love to, we'd just love to see you come. We'd love to be able to walk with you and put our life into yours. That's what we're committed to do. And so we'll give you an invitation to come as we stand to sing. Would you come right, right at first?